welcome to the Real Weird Podcast, Episode Four: Treasure in the Trash. Hey everyone! So today we got something that is very in line with what the, you know, name of the show is. We've got four. Ep- we got four movies that I would consider to be prime examples of so bad they're good movies. Movies that tried to do something serious and ended up failing so hard, but in a way that lets you ironically enjoy them. Now, a lot of them, uh, a lot of movies in general that are labeled so bad they're good, it really depends on your taste. But, you know, there's a lot to choose from. Uh, Some others include, you know, Uninvited by Graydon Clark, uh, Jahangir Salehi's Dangerous Men. I'd personally include the, you know, 2003 Daredevil movie. But today we've got uh, four of the more famous ones, or three of the more famous ones, and one that I found on the internet when I was in college and just absolutely loved. So we've got Ed Wood's famous uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space. We've got Troll 2. We've got The Room by Tommy Wiseau. And finally, we'll have Who Killed Captain Alex, which I'm going to be spending a little more time on, and I've got some stuff up on Twitter and Instagram to go with it. So we'll get started. So first up, as I said, we have Edward Edward Wood's famous sci-fi misfire, Plan 9 from Outer Space. It was originally going to be referred to as Grave Robbers from Outer Space, and in fact the uh, guy doing the intro in the movie actually still calls it that. Um, It was Released in July of 1959, and television rights were sold two years earlier. It was played on television for a few years in relative obscurity. And then when it got to what you could call cult status was in 1980. Uh, The film critic Michael Medved and his brother Harry, they published their book The Golden Turkey Awards. Uh, It was a bunch of movies that they considered to be the worst of all time. This movie was not only dubbed the worst movie ever, but Wood was also listed as the worst director ever. But if you've seen the movie at all, you can understand why that it's developed something of a cult following. Now, what you can say to the credit of the next two on our list, Troll 2 and The Room, is that Fergasso and Wiseau both tried to make movies that they actually had the budget for. Wiseau tried to make a sort of romantic drama with elements of tragedy in it. Fergasso tried to make a sort of supernatural creature horror. But Ed Wood, here with basically no money, tried to make some sort of epic-scale sci-fi alien invasion movie. It's, I mean, it's got, like, all the classic images you associate with, like, a shitty 50s B-movie. It's just that everything is basically dialed up, like, 3,000%. There are several scenes where... You can see the boom mic's shadow, or in one case, you can actually see the mic itself, just at the very top of the screen. There are incredibly cheap sets. Like, there's a scene where it's supposed to be like the saucer flies over. So there's just this light and sound effect, and everyone hits the ground, and you can see, like, the tombstones just sort of shaking. It's like they're made out of, like, cardboard and construction paper. (laughs) The... 
there are scenes that are supposed to be outdoors, but you can tell it's just like a sound stage with like a painted wall or a black curtain. And on top of that, there are scenes where it cuts back and forth between two things that are supposed to be happening in the same scene, but it's almost like they're cutting back and forth between day and night in the same scene. <laughs> Cause you see the light background in one shot and then you see in the next shot, it's got like the black curtain. that's supposed to be the nighttime sky. And I'm probably not the first to say this. I'm definitely not actually, but Ed Wood seems like he was trying to make several movies at once here. There's like a mix of classic sci-fi as well as what's called Adam punk, which Okay, the different type of punk subgenres, like cyberpunk is sort of futuristic. Uh, Steampunk is basically like the Victorian era. Adam punk is basically like that post-war, post-World War II up to like the digital. So like 45 to 69 basically is the time period. Uh, I think like the Fallout games basically. And that's basically mixed with gothic horror. And the former of these was just getting going. And Gothic Horror was kind of on its way out because everyone thought it was kind of old-fashioned and silly. But regarding that Gothic Horror aspect, one of the people who was technically in the movie, because Bella, because uh, Ed Wood was becoming good friends with him, is none other than Bella Lugosi, the original Universal Dracula. He actually shot a bunch of unrelated footage with Lugosi in various different scenarios. That was going to be used for another project, but Lugosi died before they could do anything with it. So the footage was used for this, so they could bill it as Lugosi's last film to draw in other funds and investors. The problem is that Lugosi's scenes were fairly random. It's just like this old man in like a top hat and a cape walking around. Uh, one attending a funeral, you have one scene where it's just him and his old Dracula getup. <laughs> so they didn't have enough to finish whatever subplot that was going with him. So his character was replaced with a stand-in, and I kid you not, it is literally just uh, the director's wife's chiropractor, and he's hunched over and he's holding his cape up to his face. Uh, the reason for this was because the actual like plot of this movie is that some aliens have invaded the, they've invaded the planet because supposedly humans are getting very close to discovering something that could potentially destroy the entire universe. And apparently the aliens thought the best way to communicate this to us and get us to stop doing that was to raise a bunch of our dead and (laughs) just have them sort of wander around and frighten people, which makes no sense at all. Uh, some other notables from the cast include um, Vampira, real name Malia Nurmi, whose primary claim to fame is that she was the hostess of a television horror show uh, before and after this. If you've heard of Elvira, Vampira was basically the original. Actually, actually, Elvira was supposed to be a reboot of Vampira show, but uh, Nurmi left the show because of creative differences and Elvira was actually used because they couldn't use Vampira's name legally, but the court did decide that uh, Nermi's case against them was baseless because Elvira was enough, was different enough substantially that it didn't count as intellectual property theft. 
We've also got uh, Tor Johnson, who is a Swedish wrestler, who plays Detective Clay, who's killed off early, early and raised as undead. Uh, the alien leader is a drag queen named John Breckenridge in his only film role. Uh, and this is actually a fun little side note. 1994, Tim Burton made the uh, biopic Ed Wood, starring Johnny Depp, Patricia Arquette, Martin Landau, and Bill Murray. And the main character, Mr. Trent, and two of the police officers, their actors actually had cameo roles in that later film. And on the topic of Ed Wood being, despite some of the creative liberties taken, mostly revolving around uh, the portrayal of Bela Lugosi and um, Wood's uh, ex-wife at the time, Dolores Fuller. It's a wonderful little biopic of Wood, and it ends with this comically dramatized scene where the production of Plan 9 is shown, and Wood's just, like, powering through it while the producers are expressing their doubts. Like, wait, why is... Wait, how are these... Don't you think the audience will notice that you're cutting back and forth between day or night? And he's like, what, have you never heard of suspension of disbelief? <laughs> and, yeah, the funny, the funny part was Depp said that what got him interested in uh, agreeing to this was that John Waters actually recommended Plan 9. The, the, the two of them actually worked together on a movie called Cry Baby a few years earlier. I haven't seen that one, but I've heard good reviews, so I may end up watching that soon. Because uh, this was like pre-Fear and Loathing Depp. And it's worth noting that one of the things Depp said that he did to get into character for Ed Wood was uh, he watched a lot of uh, both... He watched a lot of speeches from Ronald Reagan, both from his political career and from his acting career. Because according to him, he felt Reagan had this sort of like blinding optimism that he could project onto other people. And he felt it would be perfect for a fictionalized version of Wood. And that's kind of why I think the movie has endured and become a cult classic. I mean, it's ambitious and it fails so hard because it's played completely straight. Like, there's no... There's very little intentional humor in the movie. I mean, it's utterly shit in terms of production value. But he got it made despite the fact that he didn't have funds, he didn't have special effects, he didn't have a coherent story, <laughs> to be honest. But that's kind of the obscure charm and ironic enjoyment of actor to this is that it's enough to cancel out the terrible state of the movie on a formal technical level. And on top of that, it was made in the tail end of the fifties. So if you're anything like me, the fact that it's old, the shittiness kind of has a bit of a charm to it just cause it's such an old movie. Yeah. There's, there's a reason I would consider this to be one of the, uh, must watches if you want to get into so bad, they're good movies because this is pretty much the original. Uh, <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I could include the the old Reefer Madness movies too, but that's mostly just because, you know, people didn't understand a goddamn thing about weed back then. Uh, I'll get off the topic. Maybe I'll cover Reefer Madness some other day, but for now we're going to be moving on to The Room. Ah, uh, yes, The Room. Tommy Wiseau's infamously bad attempt at a romantic drama. He apparently self-financed it, in addition to writing, directing, and starring in it. 
Uh, no one's quite sure where he got the money for it, as it turns out, though over the years, um, uh, Greg Sestero, who plays uh, Johnny's best friend Mark in the movie. Uh, yeah, by the way, if you haven't either read the book or seen the movie The Disaster Artist, go do so, because it's a wonderful little uh, bit of insight into the production of this movie from someone who had a big part in it. And Sestero claims that Wizzo offered several explanations over the years, including involvement with some kind of import-export business or real estate. Sestero came to the conclusion himself that Wizzo probably had some sort of uh, familial inheritance they just didn't want to talk about for some reason because he was... He had a lot of independent money, let's put it that way, but no one's entirely sure where he got it. It's worth noting that some of the people on the casting crew were actually afraid that the whole thing was some kind of like money laundering scheme just because this guy was trying to make a movie and, you know, clearly did not have much clue as to what he was doing a lot of the time. And I love this description. Someone actually referred to this movie as the Citizen Kane of bad movies. It's easy to see why. It's competently made. Like, it's it's better than... Plan 9 on a technical level in a lot of ways, although, to be fair, this was made in the early 2000s, not the late 50s. But it was shot on film, so it looks like a, so it looks like a you know, decent standard movie. Um, but, on, but the performance is just so bad, and the writing is so weird. There's no structure to it, and it kind of takes you out of the movie. It's, it almost kind of feels like this... <laughs> One of my other favorite descriptions of it is, like, it feels like whoever made this movie was an alien who's never seen a movie, but had a movie, but had movies described to them in great detail, and then just tried to replicate it based on what they heard. Uh, as far as performances go, Tommy Wiseau has become something of a gold mine of memes for the internet due to his performance. You know, if you've seen, like, the scene where he's just going up to the rooftop he's just going i did not hit her it's not true it's bullshit i did not hit her i did not oh hi mark <laughs> or just the infamous you're tearing me apart lisa i'm i'm sorry for anyone having to listen to this i'm not good at doing Wizzo's impression he's got this really really weird accent that i just cannot place he's been really cryptic about his background and apparently claimed for a while to be from New Orleans, which, yeah, bullshit, that's not a fucking New Orleans accent. I remember a friend of mine saying, it's not, it's like a weird mix of French, German, and I just chimed in, and brain damage. <laughs> which, yeah, I, I know, I don't mean to make jokes about that, if that's actually the reason, but I just don't know what the hell this guy is, where he's from. I have heard that apparently someone got a hold of documents that suggest he might have been from Poznan in Poland. And at some point he moved to the German city of Strasbourg. Before. Or, well, the city of Strasbourg. I don't remember if that's one of those ones that's like majority German but is in France. I don't know. So, as for the movie itself, for those that don't know, Tommy Wiseau plays Johnny, who is a sort of banker of some sorts, living with his fiance Lisa in this uh, apartment in San Francisco. And his friends Mark and Denny visit regularly, and those are kind of the four like regular characters. 
And the only real plot thread here that goes all the way through is that um, Mark and Lisa are having an affair behind Johnny's back. And according to Sestero, Lisa was based off a real-world ex-girlfriend who kind of fucked around behind Tommy Wiseau's back. So they broke off their engagement. And frankly, I'm going to be honest, I hope that's the case, because otherwise I have no clue why Lisa is written to be such a bitch. She's manipulative. She has basically no motivation for anything she does. She has no character depth. She's a pathological liar. And completely unprompted, by the way. It's not like she and Johnny even had a fight before this happened. Not even an argument. But in one of the multiple scenes where her best friend or her mother just shows up for basically no reason and talk about nothing of substance other than this, he basically just says that she basically just says that Johnny got drunk one night and hit her. Wait a second. Someone named Johnny being falsely accused of domestic violence? Where have I heard this before? Okay, sorry. I'm, I'll, I'll get off that. <laughs> but yeah, it's like there, this was not, there was nothing that even really prompted this. The scenes and dialogue are so comically repetitive. Much of it's taken up by unrelated subplots. I mean, Lisa's mom just comes in one day and just says, I got the test back, I definitely have breast cancer, and that's never addressed to the rest of the movie. Denny also apparently owes money to a drug dealer, but that subplot is established and resolved within, like, one three-minute scene. Because, conveniently, everyone in the apartment just shows up, grabs the dealer off of Denny, and then just, like, forces him out of the building. It's It's not set up before that scene. It has no relevance to anything that happens afterwards. Um, yeah, this the writing in this movie just makes no sense whatsoever. Lisa often stops conversations about Johnny with some line like, oh, I don't want to talk about it, including the times when she's the one that, you know, brought up the subject to begin with. There's like four or five sex scenes that go on just way too long, and they all have this just cringy early 2000s R&B slow jam. Although contrary to some reports, I should mention... These were actually the last scenes that were shot, not the first. Um, It's because I've seen some ways, I've seen some people try and make it out like Wizzo was just a creep. Like, you know, force this actress into a bunch of sex scenes, which, no, these were like the last ones to be shot, like I mentioned. And apparently, like, I think part of it's also just the fact that the girl who ended up playing Lisa in the movie was like an understudy. And they went through, like, three other actresses before settling on her. Um, again, to give some idea of the, like, inept writing, there's this one character, Peter, who's a psychiatrist friend of Johnny, who doesn't show up in the latter half of the movie because the actor left the production. So the remainder of his lines were given to another actor whose character is never introduced and has is never addressed by name in the entire movie. I... <laughs> Look, I probably should have given this proviso at the top, but if you haven't seen any of these movies, go watch them, because I don't really know if I can give a proper idea to you about just how utterly inept all of these movies are in most ways. Because you really have to see them to believe them. Like A lot of these movies, like I feel like they have to be... I've kind of felt like it's hard to be this bad at making a movie without it being slightly intentional. I know... Yeah, I know making a movie isn't easy at every... I know making a movie is not easy at all, but you'd feel like, if nothing else, they'd have 
the story would not be a part of that. But yeah. And to compound all of the, you know, above the line issues, like with the performances and writing, Below the Line had its own issues. Wizo apparently made several really questionable decisions about the production. Uh, for a start, even though, you know, it's just like a drama movie and all of this stuff could have been shot on location if they just found someone who was willing to, like, let them borrow their apartment for a few hours. For a few hours out of, it was over a few weeks. Wizo insisted that all of this stuff be shot on sets made in a studio, which would have been uh, a lot cheaper, which would have been a lot more expensive than just shooting on location. Wizo, for some reason, also decided to shoot simultaneously on HD video, but also on 35mm film, although the film was the only thing that was used in the final cut, and he actually bought the equipment instead of just renting it. He had to shell out some money for new cast and crew members because disputes and arguments with them led to him replacing the crew itself several times. And on top of that, there were a lot of delays in getting stuff done because several cast and crew members were given multiple and often like disparate responsibilities that had nothing to do with each other. I mean, just to give one example, like I mentioned Greg Sestero, according to him, in addition to playing Mark, he was also a casting director, he was a line producer, and he was a director's assistant. Not an assistant director, but an assistant to the director. It's I'm so a little unclear as to what the distinction is between the two, but I'll read up more on that at a later date. And apparently, Wiseau himself had difficulty remembering his lines, which means that several scenes were intended to just be dialogues of a few minutes in length, and they sometimes ended up taking hours to shoot. I mentioned earlier the infamous scene where he's like coming up to like the rooftop scene and he's just like, you know, complaining to himself, you know, I did not hit her. It's not true. Oh, hi, Mark. That took 32 takes. That took 32 takes to film. Like if you've seen them, like I said, if you've seen the movie, you know what scene I'm talking about. And it's just amazing. And it's, I don't know. I mean, I honestly feel bad for Wizo on some level because, yeah, he made a lot of questionable decisions and his poor writing, uh, poor people skills as well led to his movie kind of being really inept. And it sucks because, like, I can tell the guy, just from reading about him, is definitely a real film buff. Um, a lot of his influence for this movie was the acting of you know, early Clint Eastwood, Orson Welles, the direction of Alfred Hitchcock, uh, a lot of the chamber plays made by Tennessee Williams, and a lot of... Some of the lines in the movie are actually, like, references to, like, James Dean's movie. Like, the infamous, you're tearing me apart, Lisa, that's been flowing around on the internet pretty much as long as there's been an internet at this point. That was originally... That's very close to a line that James Dean said in Rebel Without a Cause. And all of this with his, I'm going to be frank, lack of skill in making the movie ended up in a movie that cost about $6 million to shoot, which you would not guess by looking at the movie, which also because of inflation would be about $9 million today, or a little less than that. 
and it got a grand total of $2,000 during its opening week. Not opening weekend, opening week. That was how hard it failed. So, yeah, I <laughs> I feel bad for him, but there is just something mesmerizing about how bad this movie is. I will say that as far as being like a perfect so bad it's good movie, my only complaint is that it is a little too long. You could probably trim like 20 minutes out of it and it would have the same effect. But, yeah, definitely go give it a shot. Go give it a watch if you feel like just laughing at this bizarre acting <laughs> and weird scenes for about a minute, for about an hour and 40 minutes. Next up on the docket, we have Troll 2, written and directed by Italian schlock legend Claudio Fergasso, here under the pseudonym of Drake Floyd, and with the aid of his wife, Rosella Drudy, and Joe D'Amato, who is another film director, uh, famous for, like, cheapo Italian stuff, who's acting as producer. Originally conceived of as Goblins, the... Uh, movie's story came from uh, Rosella Drudy, the director's wife. She apparently became frustrated with a lot of her friends becoming vegetarians and how preachy they got afterwards, according to her. And as often happens with low-budget Italian horror movies, because apparently Italian copyright law did not say explicitly Okay, so a lot of Italian movies would sometimes be given uh, unrelated titles, uh, basically just to cash in on bigger foreign franchises. Um, for example, one of the other movies Fergasso made was called Night Killer, and it was released under the name of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. Hilariously enough, the same year the actual Texas Chainsaw Massacre was released in least in the U.S. Um, yeah, there was another... Oh, yeah, Lucio Fulci was another Italian director who I'll be talking about in October. Um, he made his movie Zombie 2 because Dawn of the Dead was released in Italy as Zombie, for example. So he wanted to sort of ride the publicity. So that was something you could do under Italian copyright law. It was just slap the label on your movie saying it's part of a franchise even though it's not and there was no problem and this one was made to write off the success of another film in this case it was billed as a sequel to Troll which was also a low budget movie uh, that didn't get very good reviews but was pretty successful was by direct, directed by John Carl Beekler who is mostly known as a special effects guy um he directed, I think it was part seven, Friday the 13th, The New Blood. And basically the story here is that there's the Waits family. We have the youngest son, Joshua, who is visited by visions of his dead grandfather, Seth, warning him away from danger. And... The story with the family is that they're going on a little house swap vacation to a tiny little town called Nilbog. We'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> and basically they go to the town and the grandfather is warning him, you know, you need to find a way to get your family out of the town because the 
uh, residents of this town are not humans. They are actually, in fact, shape-shifting goblins. And this is the part where we get to why the story about the director's wife and her friends becoming vegetarians gets to... (laughs) comes up with the story. It's because the goblins don't just eat people. What they do is that they turn them into plants and then eat them then by poisoning their food and drink with some kind of like weird goo. It's like green in color. Seriously, it it almost kind of looks like Nickelodeon slime. So yeah, shot in and around the Utah towns of Morgan and Porterville in the summer of 1989. Troll 2 had a budget of about $100,000 actually. And most of the cast were either unknowns or amateurs or locals from the area who initially hoped to be extras or bit players. Uh, George Hardy, who plays the father Michael in the film, he was one of the people who just showed up trying to get a uh, bit as an extra or a side character, and he ended up being cast in one of the most dialogue-heavy roles in the film, even though... You know, he was just some local dentist who had no acting experience. And this is probably one of my favorite uh, bits of trivia about the film, is that there's this uh, drugstore clerk who's giving this really, really unhinged performance. (laughs) And the actor, Don Packard, was... He was actually a mental patient from a nearby hospital who was out on a day pass. And later... He recalled getting smoking a ton of weed before they started filming, so he said that he's not acting in that scene. <laughs> it's just going on this rant. Like the guy asks him if he has any coffee, and he's like, "We don't serve coffee around here. It's the devil's drink." Which gets funnier when you remember that the towns they're filming in are predominantly Mormons. But <laughs> so yeah, um, another thing that gives it the again, kind of going back to like the whole issue with the room is that another thing that gives it the bizarre, so bad it's good, really campy feel is the script. Uh, Fergasso, Drudy, D'Amato, they were all Italians, as was most of the crew. Uh, Laura Gemser, Gemser, I'm still unclear about how to pronounce her last name. But she was a costume and wardrobe designer for it, and she was one of D'Amato's frequent collaborators from his movies. Um... She was the only one that could speak fluent English, so she was the sort of go-between between the cast and crew and the uh, and the director. And the script was sort of written in the sort of pidgin English that uh, Fergasso could say, so it was kind of broken. Apparently, according to the cast, they um, offered to fix the dialogue to make it more grammatically correct, more syntactically correct, but the director insisted that they deliver it verbatim. And the cast, by extension, often had difficulty figuring out what the crew was asking them to do or sometimes what was even supposed to be going on in the scene. So that's two big reasons why the dialogue is so bizarre and why the plot's so convoluted and has no real structure. I mean, to be fair, I've seen a lot of Italian horror movies, again, from, like, Lucio Fulci, uh, some of Dario Argento's stuff, and... Again, in those movies, the plot also feels like it has no structure, but that it actually feels kind of compelling. It feels like they're doing that intentionally. There's the premise, and then things just kind of happen. That's kind of how it feels. On top of that, 
Um, the cheap effects are also adding a bit of cheesy charm to it. The costumes are just like rubber suits that have no articulation. Uh, some prosthetics to make it look like they're bark and branches growing off a person. There's this witch character who has like no real reason for most of the movie except being a, I guess, a religious leader for the for the goblins. And she's really a standout performance solely because her overacting is so campy and bizarre. <laughs> uh, yeah, Fergasso, like Wizzo, I should mention, has insisted that the movie was intentionally comedic, but I really find that difficult to believe. Because, like, everyone is just playing their role so straight, aside from the witch, like I mentioned. The only unironic thing I love about the movie is the score. And it's recorded entirely on a Roland D50 and a Korg M1 synthesizer. And it consists of just a few themes repeated over and over. It definitely has this sort of like cheesy 80s vibe, and it's often used in scenes that are rather unfitting for the tone. As I said when I talked about the Jalo movies and, Butterfly and Scorp- Butterflies and Scorpions, low-budget Italian movies almost always have these really kick-ass scores, even if the movie itself is kind of crappy. There's the joke I heard from another like YouTube channel is like you buy the score and you get a movie with it. <laughs> is how it is how it feels sometimes. Uh for those that want a more in-depth view of the movie behind the scenes, I definitely recommend the documentary Best Worst Movie. It's directed by Michael Stevenson, uh who plays Josh Waits in the movie. It was released in 2009 and it examines both the bizarre behind-the-scenes events that led to the production and the cult following that developed afterwards in the years since release. In summary, it's a collection of contrivances, bad actors delivering a terribly campy script, incomprehensible story, cheap production value, and all of it adds up to a horror movie that at its best can can cause laughter. And you know what? It's fucking glorious. And finally, we have Who Killed Captain Alex. I'm going to be honest, this is like the best thing ever. And it's a terrible movie on a technical level in pretty much every way. But in terms of just being movie as an art form, it's pretty much just some of the realest shit ever. And I know that's weird saying this about this movie because it was made in Uganda for a whopping $200. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It is the brainchild of Nabwana Isaac Godfrey Jeffrey. Yes, that is his full name. He's a local man who sold off a lot of his personal possessions, sold homemade bricks to his neighbors to save up money, and he bought a Sony digital camera and assembled a computer out of spare parts, along with a whole bunch of like props for the movie. It was produced back in 2010, And the main storyline of the movie is that there's this criminal organization called the Tiger Mafia that is taking over Kampala. The army sends in uh, Captain Alex, who is the sort of like their best of the best in terms of commandos. And right as they're about to, you know, finish them off, they find that Alex has been killed in his sleep uh, off camera. And... The rest of the movie follows his, I kid you not, Shaolin-trained martial artist brother named Bruce Yu. It's supposed to be a reference to Bruce Lee, in case you couldn't figure that out. He was brought in to find his brother's killer. 
I won't spend too much time on the movie itself because, quite frankly, the whole movie is up on YouTube as of writing this. It's only an hour and some change, so go watch it. Like I said, it's shot on cheap digital with pretty much all natural lighting. All of the stunt work is done by the actors themselves. And apparently most of these guys are actual participants in local martial arts tournaments. And honestly, it's it's one of the things that kind of sells the action in a lot of parts with this, with the with the fight scenes, is that, I mean, obviously, you know, they're not actually beating the shit out of each other, but they're actually letting you see what's happening. This isn't like a big Hollywood movie like Taken, where there's like 15 cuts within like five minutes, within like three seconds, just because they had to hide how bad the choreography is. But, like, and I've posted a photo and some videos up on Instagram for those that want to see, because I actually purchased a physical copy of this when I was in college. But the thing I love most about this movie, like I said, it is some of the realest shit in terms of movie production. And as bad as the movie is on a technical level, it's one of the most prime examples of just treating movies like an art form. It's completely guileless. It's just meant to be entertaining. Because... Nibwana never actually intended to sell it on a mass market because the internet in his area has improved a lot since then, but at the time, it was really, really spotty. So he just sold the movies door-to-door with a bunch of his friends in uh, his village and the surrounding neighborhoods. The only DVD copies available are kind of low-resolution copies, though obviously they're still worth getting. Uh, I think there's actually, like... I think someone's actually gotten... I think some I think there's one label called American Genre Film Archive. They've actually managed to get Blu-ray masters of it. And the reason but the reason why it was only low res DVDs that you could get for the longest time is because Nabwana actually deleted this one from his hard drive to make room for his next movie. And then that movie got lost in a power surge and he's made like 30 movies since this one came out. He was actually really surprised when it got inquiries from foreign viewers asking for physical copies because someone went to the trouble of like uploading it online and it got a lot of foreign attention. And since then, even if it's, you know, just for the memes, he's gotten interest from foreign viewers and he's even gotten a chance to do some other work. Um, there's a German death metal band actually called Heaven Shall Burn. And they actually got this guy to come up and direct a couple of their music videos, hilariously enough. So I'm assuming that the guy probably has some actual skill when it comes to, you know, directing a movie that actually has some, like, you know, higher-grade equipment. It's so cheap and endearing, and that's, like I said, that's why I love this movie so much. It's art for art's sake, even though it's so bad on a technical level. And if you want to get some idea as to, like, how, like, down-to-earth this guy is, like, the production company that he sort of put together to make this and a lot of his later movies, it's called Ramon Film Productions, spelled like the Spanish name Ramon, but it's named after his uh, grandmothers, Rachel and Monica. The distribution arm is called Wakaliwood, after Wakaliga, which is the local area's name. And, yeah, honestly, it's like there's no ego with him. He just does what he does because he likes movies and he wanted to make one and have it be sort of like a little community bonding thing. And, honestly, that's just... 
This is some of the most wholesome shit I've seen with movies in a long time, honestly. I really feel like, yeah, just... It it would cost me like 13 bucks to get the physical copy back then. I don't know if it's gone up, but seriously, go support the official release, honestly. Because I guarantee you, if for no other reason, it'll be fun to enjoy. So now I guess it's just closing thoughts. I mean, I just wanted to say this. A fair amount of my friends asked me why I bother with like, you know, so bad they're good movies like this. Because I'm usually the person in my social circle and my family that likes some of the more higher grade, really artsy stuff. And I tell them this. It's because if you are like me and you want to get into show business someday, preferably even to movies, maybe even making your own, stuff like this is something, is a good motivational thing. Because sometimes the movies are so bad, and yet you look at them and say, well, they're terrible, but these guys, they got their movies made. Um, And even if they failed at what they were trying to do, they're still entertaining. And I think if you only look at the movies that did things well when trying to make your own stuff, that's going to be a problem. Because... You know, as some people have said, if you only look at the works of, like, Hitchcock and Scorsese, uh, Spielberg, you're going to get it into your head that making a movie is easy because these great directors, they make it look easy. Sometimes you can sometimes you can watch bad movies and get just as much out of them in terms of, you know, what to do and what not to do when trying to make a movie. I remember talking about, you know, one of the another one that's considered to be one of the worst of all time is Manos, The Hands of Fate. And, you know, you can look at it and say, okay, this is what can go wrong with editing. This is what can go wrong with story writing. This is what can go wrong with <laughs> hiring filming while one of our lead actors is on LSD. But, <laughs> um, yeah, not... I don't want to make it sound like you should watch these movies and get motivated out of spite. Like, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do it right. I mean, if that's what it takes to get you to write your fucking screenplay, go do it, man. But, you know, like, some of them is just... I don't want to make it sound like making a movie is easy, depending on what you want to do, but start out with stuff that you can do with what you have or with what you can raise. Um... I don't want to plug myself too much, but I have actually been working on, you know, a couple of screenplays myself, but I don't know even if I got the funding if I'd want to start out directing them. Um, but, oh God, I don't want to ramble on too long, but yeah, the point is, like, go watch these movies and I hope that they get some motivation for you if this is something you want to do uh, with your creative endeavors because... It's a good way to remind yourself that the worst thing that you can do with a movie is be both shallow and boring. These movies, they're awful on technical levels, but they're still entertaining, so they're still movies that are worth watching. And, yeah, so, to paraphrase my old high school man director, if you're going to fail, fail confidently. 
I don't know. I just don't want to sound like I'm just talking just to hear myself talk, but this is why I like watching these kinds of movies because a lot again, a lot of times you can get entertainment out of them even though they failed at what they were trying to do. But at the same time, I'm going to say this. Don't try to make a So Bad It's Good movie because it's going to be obvious that that's what you were trying to do. Make a B movie. Make it cheesy. Make it be self-aware. I mean... Yeah, there's no harm in making fun of <laughs> of genre tropes while you're trying to do the same kind of movie. I mean, that's pretty much the entire impetus of the Scream franchise, and that's considered to be like one of the most influential in horror genre. But don't I'm saying don't try to make a new Troll Two. Don't try to make a new The Room, because people are gonna see through it and they're gonna just accuse you of being lazy as a filmmaker, but you know, I know everyone, I know with big movies like, you know, uh, Marvel and DC, I know with like star Wars getting its reboot, I know it feels like, you know, there's no room for indie cinema anymore. And I'm like, that's not true. That's not fucking true at all. If nothing else, I know recording equipment is not easy to get. I know it's, might seem like a foreign language to anyone who hasn't done, like, AV skills in the past. I know it might be difficult to get distribution, but, you know, I think the fact that like movies like X have gotten their... have gotten such a good review, such good following, that, you know, there's, there's still a room for, like, low-budget indie films especially ones that aren't based off of, like, big IPs anymore. So, yeah, definitely give it a shot. I mean, like, worst-case scenario, it might... And if the first one doesn't succeed, keep trying. I mean, we are at a point in history where, with technology, as as J.J. Abrams said, it is sort of democratized filmmaking now. Doesn't mean the movie's going to be good, but it would at least be easier for, like, you know, someone who has, you know, no connections in Hollywood, no connections in films and film or even show business in general, probably no experience with making movies. It's probably going to be easier now to get started than at any point since cinema started to be a thing to get your foot in the door with it. All you need to do is just figure out what you can work with, figure out if you've got a decent enough script to work with, get decent equipment, and then find a way to get the word out. Because, you know, as much as I don't particularly care for a lot of things on social media, that is one of the benefits, is that it's very easy to promote yourself. You just need to keep trying, and... Yeah, I know I'm rambling on a bit, but, you know, I hope someone... If you watch any of these movies, or even just take heart from what I'm saying here, I hope that if anyone's listening to this and is an aspiring director or actor or screenwriter I hope you take some motivation away from this to you know work with whatever you can to do whatever you can and get your movie made or your song written or whatever your particular brand of show business is all right I'm gonna wrap this up because I want to keep it under 50 minutes uh join me it's gonna be a bit longer but I'll be back on the uh 17th of June I've just got some shit going on in my personal life that I need to sort out first, uh, especially money-wise. 
Uh, so I'll be back then, and we'll be talking about a nice little uh, social satire from the 80, from 1982, I believe. It's called Eating Raul, starring Paul Bartel and Mary Warrenoff, and I hope you'll join me then. Bye.